Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, uh, confessing sin in silent prayer to the Lord if necessary. And then after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, when we look around at the world around us, we are so grateful that we have you to turn to, that you are our our rock and our high tower, you are our fortress, you're our shield, and you are the one who protects us and watches over us and guides and directs us all the time. We know that no matter how bad things may be, that you have a plan and a purpose, and that eventually there will come a time when Everything about this life is long gone and forgotten, and we will have a happiness and a joy and being in your presence that will bring such a a wonderful reality that we can't even imagine it today. But Father, we thank you we have the opportunity to serve you in the devil's world, and that uh, by doing so, you you mature us, you teach us, you train us so that we can develop a spiritual capacity. Father, we see a world around us that is not unlike the world at the time of the judges. Uh, It may be a lot bigger. There may be more technology. But the basic problem is the same, and that is rejection of you and suppressing truth and unrighteousness. So, Father, as we wrap up this study of judges tonight, we pray that you will help us to uh, see the significance of what's going on here at the end and that you will... Uh, encourage us with your grace in spite of all these failures. We see the glories of Israel were yet to come at that time and yet to come today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles to Judges chapter 21. Judges 21, and we come to the end of this this, uh, incredibly tragic uh, episode. And as I stated when we got into this, there are these two episodes that come at the end of the book of Judges, chapters 17 and 18 that deal with an apostate priest that shows how how an apostate, idolatrous religion was introduced into uh, Israel, into the north. And then we see this this, uh, gruesome episode with the... Uh, another Levitical priest and his concubine and what happens there. So the title for this lesson 
is the hacked up concubine and the hacked up tribe. Because the word that it describes what has happened to Benjamin is a word that basically means to be hacked up. And it ties, it ties the end of this episode uh, together. So as we look at what is going on here, I can certainly see some critics of the Bible reading through some parts of this, maybe opening the Bible and coming to Judges chapter uh, 19 and reading through it and then uh, saying something like, why should anyone read these gruesome stories about violence and perversion? Uh, This isn't fit for anybody to read. Uh, It's all about uh, male domination and the abuse of women, and it's all justified by some kind of uh, religious... Uh, casuistry. It's just fallacious reasoning, and this has no value for anybody, so why should anybody read the Bible? Well, the answer to that is because what God is doing with this, if you understand it in context, is he's revealing to us what happens when people ignore God, when they suppress the truth of Scripture, and when they think they know better than God about what is right and what is wrong. And when they try to live their lives or run their country uh, as if God doesn't exist. And the episode, and these last two episodes in 17 and 18 and 19 to 21 show what happened to the nation so rapidly. It just took a couple of generations Uh, not even two, one generation after the death of the elders for this implosion and fragmentation of the nation to take place. Just the breakdown of the family that occurred, the breakdown of individual responsibility of the people to the covenant and to walking uh, with the Lord according to the Mosaic law led to this collapse. And sometimes some of us have said, we just can't believe what's happened in this country. It's so quick. Well, it really wasn't quick. People with insight, uh, even in the 70s, were looking at what was happening and predicting exactly where we are today. Some of them thought it would get here a lot quicker. Uh, some of them maybe a little longer, but, but here we are. So these... Two episodes show because the one, one episode, the first episode, had to do with this uh, anonymous Levitical priest who at the end is revealed to be Moses' grandson. And then the high priest at the time of, of this event, uh, according to the, the uh, uh, chapter 20 that we studied last time, was the grandson of Aaron. So this is very close uh, to the time of the of the of the conquest uh, once Joshua died once the uh that generation died off they they just collapsed uh in a very quick way and so when we uh look at this the whole study of judges it just reveals to us how rapidly a civilization can collapse and stay that way and this lasted for uh, 350 to 400 years from about the time they go into the land, probably 1350, up until um, 300 years till David takes over, or till Saul. They have a king with Saul, and then it's another 40 years before David. So David still has a lot of house cleaning to do 
because of the uh, the spiritual problems of of the people but god in his grace is providing now we're not going to go from here into ruth because there's some other pressing needs that we have uh that i need to need to teach but ruth is a picture of god's grace and it takes place during this time and there are uh, lots of pictures that we've seen of god's grace during this time so just because things look bad and evil seems to be winning doesn't mean God is not at work and God is not being, being, uh, being gracious. So just a quick review of what's happened. Uh, we come to, to the end of this, this long saga. It's the second longest uh, narrative and episode in Judges, as I pointed out, the longest is that of Gideon and his son Abimelech. Uh, this is the second longest. And at times you feel like you're just mired in in all this nastiness. But uh, the the episode begins with uh, the Levite and his concubine, and she gets mad at him and leaves. And when she comes back. Uh, she is, uh, they, they leave, or he goes down to get her, and they travel back, uh, and they're headed to Gibeah, and they want to stay the night there, and then it's just this horrible attack on her, and uh, she is uh, brutally uh, gang-raped and murdered, and then he hacks up her body into 12 pieces to send out to the 12 tribes to call them uh, called them to arms. And so uh, this is really not a picture of how God would have things. It is a picture of what happens when God is ignored. And so we see a picture of how women are treated under paganism. And we see a picture of a pagan form of patriarchy that uh, violates uh, every standard of Scripture. And this is not uh, what the world presents is as if there's only one form of patriarchy, and that is uh, evil. And so we don't need to pay attention to that. And so, but the prediction in Scripture is that there will always be this breakdown, apart from the grace of God, between men and women. In Genesis three sixteen, I've touched on this a couple of times already, but I feel it's important to go back over it a little bit. When God addresses Eve after after the sin, and He is outlining the um, the consequences of their sin, He said to the woman, "I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception." Now He says that because the, the first command for them was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now you can't do that unless you're already having sexual relations and you have the ability to get pregnant. And so now he says there's going to be consequences. And he, it really, I don't have time to go into this uh, tonight, but in every command that God gave to Adam and Eve that was positive about the responsibilities they had in the garden, each of those areas is um, addressed in one form or another in these, in these distinct judgments. So the woman is involved in... Um, and producing the next generation, but now it's going to be through pain and sorrow. 
But that, that marriage that was designed by God between two human beings who were perfectly righteous is now going to be disrupted by sin. And so he addresses her and he says, your desire shall be for your husband. And so there are, there's a tendency with a lot of people uh, in the past have taught this, that because the context is marriage, this is sexual desire, but that denies the meaning of the word in the Hebrew. It's used again in the next chapter in chapter 4 to indicate the way in which um, sin crouches at the door seeking to devour Cain. These are the words that God uses. And it just points out volition. Sin's crouching at the door, but God is telling Cain, it's up to you. You have volition. You have volitional responsibility. You can choose not to succumb to sin, or you can choose to succumb to sin. But what it emphasizes in the word desire is this idea of of control. And so you have one control word used in the first part, and another control word used in the second part. He shall rule, the husband will rule over you. So you have two people who are fighting to control the marriage. Now the second uh, form of the verse that's up there is from the uh, uh, NET Bible. And it says, To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your labor pains. With pain you will give birth to children. You will want to control your husband. I put the mashal in the wrong way. It's That should have been put next to dominate. You will want to control your husband. That's teshuka. And he, but he will dominate you. And and this word that's used there to for the husband is this word mashal, which means to rule over, but in a way that emphasizes powerful control domination or mastery. This also is part of the baser human nature. In other words, this is part of the sin nature. And it's the idea that he will desire to dominate you. So you have, and the only thing that reverses that is, first of all, both people have to be saved and regenerate so they have a new nature so they they can uh, obey the lord and second they have to follow the principles of, Revel, of uh, excuse me Romans 12:2 that they have to not be conformed to the world but be transformed by the renewing of their minds and only through spiritual growth and god's grace can they overcome these trends of the sin nature so the problem is authority and this is the same problem we see we've seen all the way through the the book of judges the theme verses that we i quoted at the beginning that give us the theme of this whole period are located interestingly enough in the first chapter of these last 5 and at the end the very last book in the book of judges so in Judges 17.6, in those days, that in the days of what was taking place, and this is early on in the period of the Judges, uh, there was no king in Israel. They had rejected God as their king, and everyone did what was right or what was good in their own eyes. They Each person had their own value system as to what was right and wrong, what was good and what was bad, and each person determined it. So each person is now functionally doing what Eve wanted to do in the garden. She wanted to be the one to determine 
what was right and what was wrong. That's the essence of the sin nature. It's in rebellion against God, and man wants to do what he wants to do and and reject God. So this frames these last two episodes. And so we need to interpret when we read them, we need to read these situations in terms of the individuals in the in the stories are doing what's right in their own eyes. They're not doing what God wants them to do. They're doing what they think is the best solution. And so we see a, a problem. And in the case that we have in chapter 21, the problem is the result of the previous bad decisions that the, uh, that the Israelites made. And then the solution they come up with in the chapter is just another human viewpoint pagan system that it just uh, makes things worse. But God in his grace will straighten things out eventually. And it's just another example of Romans 8.28. But all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God is the one who is working, working there. So in this next slide, I just want to show you the geography of the story. We have the uh, previous episodes took place. Gibeah is located about where this red dot is. We have Mizpah as a holy site where the people gathered at the beginning of chapter 20. If you remember, uh, they gathered to uh, call upon the Lord. And actually what we what we read there is all the nation came from Dan to Beersheba, and uh, they gathered as one man before the Lord at Mizpah. But guess what? They weren't gathering before the Lord according to God's terms. They were gathering before the Lord according to what was right in their own eyes. And so they're going to go to the Lord and say, ask for guidance as to what to do. And God is going to tell them to uh, go up and go to battle. But he doesn't tell them they're going to get a victory. Uh, he tells them to go to battle, and so they do. And when they uh, have the first battle, 22,000 are killed. They come back, they're, ha- they're weeping and they're wailing and they're moaning. That seems to be their, um, their reaction to anything negative rather than going to the Lord in humble submission they weep and they wail, and they just have a a pity party, their own pity party. And then they uh, ask the Lord again. And again, the Lord says, uh, go up. And so the people go up, and the second time, 18,000 are killed. Now, the third time, they finally figure it out, and they come to God on God's terms. From the time we start in Genesis 3, God has described how man is to come to him. There's the sacrifice and the, and the skinning of the animals at the end of Genesis 3 where God teaches Adam and Eve the appropriate sacrifices and to come to him on his terms. You get to the ark. There's only one way to escape the worldwide flood, and that is to get on the ark. And there's only one entrance into the ark. There's only one way. God has. God is the one who describes it, and he always tells people what that way is and provides a way for them to escape, but they don't. They, they reject him. So we see this problem. Finally, they come to 
uh, obey God. And this time we see the involvement of the uh, high priest as it is described according to the uh, Levitical offerings. And this time God says, I will deliver them into your hand. They're not doing God's work God's way, so God's not going to uh, bless them. And then what happens? Then we saw something just horrific that took place. They're going to uh, execute uh, Kerem. I talked about this last time, Kerem, that is uh, not holy war, which is how some some have translated it, but it's a war of, of judicial retribution against the enemies of God. But now, instead of taking that against the Canaanites, they've already lost their fervor for war against the Canaanites. They're turning all of that energy against one of their own, a a tribe of their own, against Benjamin. And they are executing a harem war against their own people, which is in complete violation of God's God's word. So they're they're doing a right thing. They start off doing it God's way, but then they get completely out of control. So this this last chapter begins, and uh, with the first four verses, we start seeing the consequences of their arrogant apostasy. Uh, let me read these four verses. Uh, now the men of Israel had sworn an oath at Mizpah, saying, none of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin as a wife. Then the people came to the house of God and remained there before God till evening. What are they doing? They were lifting up their voices and wept bitterly. It's all emotion. And said, O Lord God of Israel, why has this come to pass in Israel, that today there should be one tribe missing in Israel? So it was on the next morning that the people rose early and built an altar there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Now what's happening here is in the flow of narrative in Hebrew, a, a, each sentence will begin with a conjunction and, and then it's attached to a verb. So Andy did this, and they did that, and he went there, and that's how they tell the story. And if you, you have certain, certain English translations will translate that fairly literally, it gets a little boring. Uh, Andy did, Andy did, and and you can see it in uh, the Gospel of John, you can really see it in Mark, that that is translated that way, and that's because of the the writer's original language and the way he talks is in Hebrew, and that's a Hebrew style. But if you want to break the action, and you say, okay, we did this, and then we did this, and then we did this, now wait a minute, remember this? and then you go forward with the narrative, you change the construction and you attach the opening conjunction and with a noun. That indicates there's a break in the action. Now, there's a place that's very well known, I've talked about before here, and that's in Genesis uh, 15, 1 through 6. And in Genesis 15, 1 through 5, Abraham's coming to God and he's saying, I got an idea. We can solve this inheritance problem, and having a son, I'll just adopt uh, Eliezer. And God said, "No, you won't, because this chi- this child is going to come. Your, this son I'm going to give you is going to come from you." And so Abraham recognizes that. Now, verse six says, 
And Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him for righteousness. Very well-known verse. Paul quotes it in Romans chapter 4. There's a lot of debate over this because uh, it looks like he's believing God for the promise of the seed. But that's not what's going on at all. Because when you look at those first five verses in the Hebrew, it's, and he did this, and God said that, and Abraham did this, and God said that. But when you come to verse 6, it starts with the with the conjunction and a noun. And what the writer is doing is he's saying, he's basically saying, stop. Now remember what's already happened. And then the next verse goes forward. So you have the same thing here. And so let me read verse 48 of the last chapter. And the men of Israel turned back against the children of Benjamin and struck them down with the edge of the sword from every city, men and beasts, all who were found. Now, is is that what God wanted him to do? That's see, that's harem warfare to kill every every man and beast. That that is not what they were supposed to do. So they got completely out of hand, and they set fire to all the cities they came to. Skip verse one. Then the people came to the house of God and remained there before God before God till evening. They lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. Verse 1 is a parenthesis. It want, it's going to bring in another idea. It goes back to uh, chapter 20, verse 1. So all the children of Israel came out when they got their uh, body part from the concubine. Uh, they came out from Dan to Beersheba, as well as from the land of Gilead. That's the Transjordan. And the congregation gathered together as one man before the Lord at Mizpah. Now, what, what we're going to be told in 21.1 is that, among other things at Mizpah that we're told about in chapter 20, they made a vow. They vowed, they swore an oath at Mizpah, according to 21.1, none of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin as a wife. So this is a problem. Because they have made an oath before the Lord. And according to Scripture, they have to fulfill uh, that particular oath. So they have put themselves in a trap by swearing this oath. Has that, have we seen that somewhere else in the book of Judges? Yes, we have with Jephthah. Jephthah swore an oath to the Lord that whatever came out of the door of his house to meet him when he came when he came back victorious from the from the war, he would offer as a burnt offering to God. He expected an animal to come out because houses in the ancient Near East then, as well as at the time of Christ, would have what we might call like a carport and uh, that was part of the house, and they would keep their better animals, their more prized possessions there in inclement weather. And so it was part of the house. And uh, there was a would be a feed trough there, otherwise known as a manger, and there'd be a watering trough. And so when Jephthah came home, he would he figured that one of the animals would come out, but his daughter came out, and he was ignorant of the law because the law said he had to fulfill his vow. But there is a provision in the law that if it involves the life of someone then it can that person can be redeemed at a price. So he could have paid a price, and he wouldn't have had to uh, sacrifice his daughter. But this text says he did as 
uh, as as he had vowed. And so he did that. Uh, he offered his daughter as a burnt offering uh, to God. So the uh, the law is very clear about vows. In Numbers 30, verses 1 and 2, Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Verse 2, If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, that's what has happened here at Mizpah, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds from his mouth. Now, just in case you think, well, that was just put there as an exception, it's repeated in Deuteronomy 23, 21 to 23. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. That is, if you didn't do it, it would be uh, a, a sin of the high hand, an intentional sin. But if you abstain from bowing, see, you don't have to make a vow. It's optional. It doesn't make you any more spiritual, so you don't have to make the vow. Uh, if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be a sin to you. That which is gone from your lips you shall keep and perform, for you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So what's happened here is, is they made this vow, and now they realize that because of their actions in the battle with uh, against the um, against the Benjamites, they have all but destroyed the tribe. Just look back to um, verse forty-seven. Verse forty-seven of, of chapter twenty. But six hundred men—that is, you have six hundred men here of Benjamin—turned and fled toward the wilderness to the pomegranate rock. And they stayed at the pomegranate rock for four months, four months. So this battle has stopped. And what happens during that four months? They're, they are hidden away, they're protected, and they're, uh, they're able to fight off any attacks on them. And then we read in verse 48, And the men of Israel turned back against the children of Benjamin and struck them down with the edge of the sword from every city, men and beasts, all who were found. They also set fire to all the cities they came to. So they were executing a harem war against their own people, and all but wiped out. What we will learn here is those 600 were the only survivors of Benjamin. Now in verse 3 of our opening, of our, uh, opening section here on verse tw- chapter 21. When they are weeping, why are they weeping? What is motivating their emotion? Carefully read this. Verse 3, O Lord God of Israel, why has this come to pass in Israel? That today there should be one tribe missing in Israel. Now don't read it as if they are pleading in a, from a legitimate mindset. Because they're not. You know, you've had times when your kids have really messed things up. They've done things wrong. They say, why? And you punish them. They say, why are you doing this to me? It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. That's exactly what they're doing here. 
they realize the consequences of their actions, but it's not my fault, it's God's fault. They're not turning to God legitimately. Even though verse 4 says that they rose early, they built an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, we need to ask ourselves, what's missing? No high priest. Where's Phineas? See, they're still not following the protocol for worship. They're also asking the wrong question. They're asking a question that comes out of their self-absorption, their arrogance. They should have asked, what has brought the nation to this point where we're imploding? What has caused this? They need to sit down and evaluate, why do we have this kind of criminality in our culture? What has brought this, this perversion and this failure upon us? Why have we failed to uphold the law? You see, they're all guilty, every one of them, because they have contributed to this, uh, this paganism where they have become as bad, if not worse, as the Canaanites. And the reality is they no longer exist as the nation God intended them to be. They have become just like the Canaanites. They have absorbed their values. So when they get up the next morning, verse 4, and they have these burnt offerings and peace offerings, are they serious about approaching God on God's terms? Or are they just doing what a lot of Christians do on Sunday mornings? They go to churches where they have certain rituals. They recite certain creeds and catechism. Uh, they light candles. They um, do various other uh, ritual procedures. But they don't understand what they're doing or why they're doing it. And their heart is still rebellious against God. It's just religious show trying to impress God with the fact that they showed up at church on Sunday morning. So the people are asking this question, how could God let this happen? And the answer is because the people had abandoned God and had not listened to him. I saw a great meme. I wish I could go back and find it. Maybe somebody will see it and send it to me. These things have a life of their own. And and it was a picture, uh, I, I'm not even sure what the picture was behind it, but the opening line was this person complaining, well, how could God let all these terrible things happen to us? And the answer was, because nobody's listened to God in a long time. And that's why these terrible things happen, because nobody's taking in the word, applying the word. It is our fault. It's not God's fault. But we all want to do what Adam did. God, it's the woman that you gave me. She's the, she's the one at fault. You gave her to me. It's really your fault. And people do that up to the present. I don't think anybody here has done it, at least in the last 35 or 40 minutes. Now, two verses that give us a real insight into their mental attitude and what's going on are verse 6 and verse 15. And these verses tell us that they're what's, what's happening emotionally to the sons of Israel. They grieved for Benjamin, their brother, 
and said our one tribe is cut off from Israel today. Now, you're going to miss the whole point of what's happening here if you think that they're, that that's what's happening. It's legitimate grief. This word that is translated Greek, grief, is, is uh, one that will show. I'll get to it in just a minute. But what they're saying is one tribe is cut off from Israel today. And this word is a gadah, and it means to hew, to hack off, or to cut up. And gadah is the root of the name Gideon. So Gideon may not have been like his birth name. Remember, he is the one who tore down the Baal altar uh, idol outside of his father's house. And so uh, that probably became sort of a nickname based on what, what he did. But this is this is the issue. They're they're complaining that one tribe is cut off. And notice it says here that the NIF there stands for uh, one of the stems in the way Hebrew verbs work, and it's the passive. So this is passive. So who performs the action of cutting off? They did. But they're not saying we cut off a tribe from Israel. They're saying a tribe has been cut off. Somebody did it. Well, who do you think they think did it? They're blaming God again. It's a passive voice. They don't really want to say, oh, well, God did this. So one tribe is cut off. So they're in an emotional state. They're blaming God. And this word that's translated grieved in both places is also a a passive. It's a nifal. It's nacham. They became grieved. Uh, but it's not just that. They became remorseful. It's a word for feel, be, feeling sorrowful about something. It's an emotional word. It, this word, nacham, is never translated into the Septuagint with the Greek word metanoeo, which is translated repent, to change your mind. This would be the word, I need to check this, but this would probably be translated by metamelamai, another Greek word which Paul used the two in opposition to one another in Second Corinthians. Metamelamai has the idea of you're sorrowful, you're emotional, you're just having a pity party. And see, that's what's happened there. All of a sudden they realize they have taken out one of the tribes, so it's a matter of sort of national pride, misplaced national pride, and, and we've got a tribe, and we almost killed every one of them. Oh, what in the world are, are, are we going to do? And so they're trying to figure out how to solve a problem, and it's a problem of their own making. It's a problem that, that, that they created because they did not restrain themselves in the war against Benjamin, and they attempted to... Uh, totally annihilate the Benjamites just as they were supposed to have done to the, to the Canaanites. So they come and, um, and th- this is the background. The human viewpoint solution is never a good solution. It's based here on a dubious legal rationale that they're going to come up with, uh, to de- and it's designed to assuage their guilt and satisfy them emotionally. So we go back to verse 6. And one other thing I want to note, they call out to God 
in verse 3, O Lord God of Israel, why has this come to pass in Israel that today there should be one tribe missing in Israel? What's missing? God's answer. See, if you compare this to chapter 20, then when they hear, when they gather themselves together and uh, as one man, and they decide that they're going to go to battle, uh, then they are going to uh, come come to God and ask Him, not how should we do this or should we do this. They tell God, which of us shall go first to battle? And so the Lord says, Judah first. They're they're not. God has answered them. But God answers them to give them direction so that they'll go through a little divine discipline in the process. And that happens twice. But here God is silent. And in the silence, what do they do? Oh, well, they just wait upon the Lord. No, that's not what they do. The next morning they get up and they say, well, God didn't say anything last night, so let's come up with our own great solution because we'll do better than anybody else. So they're going to do what, what? What's the theme? They're going to do what's right in their own eyes. And that's what this is all about. The Benjamites fought the war on what was right in their own eyes as if they were fighting the Canaanites. And then after they've killed almost every Benjamite except for 600 men, now they have a pity party and they have a problem. So how are they going to solve it? By doing what's right in their own eyes. And so we come to verse 6, they're, they're grieved, they're having this emotional overload and filled with remorse uh, because of what they have done to, to Benjamin. And they say, well, one tribe has been cut off, like, well, who did this? But they did it. But they want to solve the problem. We need to reconstitute the tribe so we can come up with a solution. So verse 7, here's the question they ask, what shall we do for wives for those who remain, these these guys need to have children so that they can rebuild the tribe. Wait a minute, I thought you guys were trying to kill them all three days ago, and now you want to reconstitute the whole tribe. See, emotion makes you do contradictory things. So they say, we've sworn this, that we can't give our daughters as wives to the Benjamites, so we've got to find some women for them. Where are we going to get some women for them? They said, are there any, they came up with an idea. Were there any tribes that didn't participate in the oath? Now that question is going to cut two ways. The, the question, is there anybody who wasn't there? So the idea at first is, well, maybe they can provide some young women for, to marry these, these 600 Benjamites. But on the other side of the question, it's, well, why weren't they there? Well, maybe they didn't think that criminality was so bad. Maybe they didn't show up because they thought that what Gibeon, the Gibeah people had done was okay. Maybe they approved of it. That's what it is. They probably approved it. Anybody not show up? And so the answer comes comes back and says, yes, there was... Uh, one group that did not come, uh, no one came from Jabesh-Gilead to, uh, to the assembly. Now, Jabesh-Gilead is across the Jordan, and uh, nobody came. And so 
um, what happens next is is they realize, okay, everybody counted, everybody made sure that it was true, and the J, no Jabesh, no one from Jabesh Gilead was there. So they decided that now we're going to execute the second attack. Not only was Gibeah wrong because of the crimes, but obviously we need to punish uh, Jabesh Gilead because they seem to have approved of what Gibeah did. So we're going to go and we're going to attack them. Isn't that a great idea? So now we have a second harem. And here, actually, you see down in verse 11, says, we shall utter, you shall utterly destroy every male, uses the word harem. So they're, they know what they're doing. They're executing this uh, harem war illegitimately against Jews, against the Israelites, against their own people. So the congregation, verse 10, so the congregation sent out there 12,000 of their most valiant men, their, their strongest best warriors, and commanded them. Now, this is the command. Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, including the women and children. See, that's the kind of instruction God gave back in Deuteronomy 7 to the Israelites is when they attacked Jericho, when they attacked Ai, when they attacked these other Canaanite cities, they were to kill every man, woman, and child, and in some cases it's specified they're to kill all the cattle and all the sheep and all the, all the animals. And so that's what their marching order is. Go st- kill everyone, kill all the women, all the women and children, and this is the thing you shall do. You shall harem every male and every woman who has known a man intimately. And guess what? The women that are left are going to be young maidens and virgins, and we can marry them off to these 600 Benjamites. Isn't that a great plan? Now, I want you to look at this from the viewpoint of the 400 women, the 400 young girls. How would you feel? All of a sudden, your your city is attacked. Everybody but 400 young women of marriageable age are killed brutally, and the whole city is burned to the ground. And then they're taken off and they're going to be forcibly married to 400 of these surviving Benjamites. What is the viewpoint of women in a culture that's going to do that? They just see women as just some some property that is to be passed around. There's no value. This is a picture of the extremes that happen when there's no redemption of mankind uh, and there's no grace, there's no regeneration, there's no salvation. And this goes back to Genesis 3.16, that there, there is this, this, the males are dominating and they want to just completely, uh, completely dominate the women and dictate everything. So um, for all of the lewd and disgraceful crimes that the uh, Gibeahites uh, performed, I'm having, there we go. Um, now they're doing something just as bad as they apply harem to fellow, fellow Jews. 
And I left verse 12 out, but verse 12 says, So they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man intimately, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Now, here's a map. So they, they've been up here in the area of Gad that is referred to also as Gilad. That's how you, the Hebrews pronounced. And they have destroyed this town. 400 young, marriageable-age women, virgins, are left, and they're going to take them down to Shiloh. Shiloh is here on the way back to uh, to Benjamin. Now, coming out of Jerusalem, which is this little black dot there at the head of the arrow, there's a highway that comes out. It kind of goes up to the north, and it goes just to the east of Gibeon and Mizpah and just just east of Bethel, about maybe two miles. And then it goes north to Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle is located. And this is where the people would come uh, to worship the Lord. The tabernacle was there for, uh, for over 350 years. So in verse 13 we read, Then the whole congregation sent word to the children of Benjamin, who were at the rock of pomegranate, the rock of Ramon, pomegranate rock, and announced peace to them. I'm sure they were glad that they weren't going to be massacred. And in verse 14, so Benjamin came back at that time, and they, that is the Israelites, gave them the 400 women that they had saved alive from the women at Jabesh Gilead. They just they, These 400 women are just treated as property. But they had a problem. How many Benjamite men survived? 600. How many women did they bring back from Jabesh Gilead? 400. Basic math, 600 minus 400 is 150. No, 200. So they've got 200 um, women, I mean men, that still don't have a wife. So what are we going to do? Well, let's go to plan C. So in verse 15. The people grieved for Benjamin. This is We've already talked about this in verse 15. Because the Lord had made a void in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation. Now these elders are about as biblically oriented as a stump. They're, they're just absolute failures. The elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who remain since the women of Benjamin have been destroyed? And they said, well, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin. There must be, and here the word inheritance often means property. There must be a property for the, for the survivors of Benjamin. And, and so the word is used to describe the women, but ultimately it's so that they can um, propagate, have another generation for whom to pass on the property that was delegated or that was divided up for them. But the problem is still their oath. They can't give up any of their daughters to marry a Benjamin. So then they're, they're thinking, they say, well, and we're not sure when this was. It just says it's a yearly feast of the Lord in Shiloh. 
Now, according to the law, there were three times a year, three feasts uh, uh, during the year, when the people were, to, the men in Israel were to gather at at the tabernacle, later the temple, to worship. And that's going to be at Passover and at Pentecost and at Yom Kippur in, in the fall. So... Um, they they say, well, there's a, just a yearly feast. It doesn't matter which one it was, uh, which is north of Bethel. So we've already seen that in the map, that they're down here at Bethel. They're down here at Bethel, and they're going to go north to Shiloh. It's north of Bethel. On the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Livona. It's still that way. You go up that same highway. It's called the Way of the Patriarchs. And that same highway that goes from Jerusalem up past Bethel and to Shechem is, goes, goes to the west of Shiloh and goes to the east of Bethel. It's the, the same, same basic road, roadbed. So they're going to go up there and they say, let's send those 200 Benjamin, young men of Benjamin, and you go wait out in the vineyards around the tabernacle and you just hide yourself so nobody knows you're there and watch. And when the daughters of Shiloh come out to perform their dances, so nobody really knows who these daughters of Shiloh were, but apparently there's a group of young women who had dedicated themselves for a time to serve at the, at the tabernacle, and they would be there during uh, the festival days, and they would perform uh, dances. And so uh, they said when they come out to perform their dances, then every one of you go grab one, and run off with her. They've got a high value for women, don't they? Just go kidnap one. And that's what they do. So it shall be that when their fathers or their brothers come to us to complain, which a good father or brother would do, then you will say to them, just be kind to them for our sakes and and uh, because we didn't take a wife for any of them in the war, for it's not as though you have given up the women to, to them at this time, making yourselves guilty of your oath. Uh, that's what they'll say to the fathers. Just, just let them take care of these men. They need a woman. So the children of Benjamin did so. They took enough wives for their number from those who danced, whom they caught. Don't you know those girls who could run fast were really happy after that? They got enough, uh, whom they caught, then they went and returned to their inheritance, and they rebuilt the cities and dwelt in them. So you have the regeneration of the tribe of Benjamin, which is really an act of the grace of God. And there are two great significant men that came from Benjamin. They're both named Saul. Saul, the son of Kish, who is a Benjamite, so he is a descendant of one of these 600 and one of the women from Jabesh Gilead. How do we know that? Now, this is, I, I played Bible trivia. This would be a great question. Why is it significant that, that Saul came 
would have been descended from from a woman who came from Jabesh Gilead. Because when Saul is killed on the Mount Gilboa and the Philistines decapitate him and they take his body to Beit Shan, the old Canaanite tell. If you've been to Beit Shan, it's not the lower Greek, Greco-Roman city. It's up on the tell. And they hung his body from the wall. And at night, the men from Jabesh Gilead came across the Jordan and they took his body down and they took it back across the Jordan and buried Saul. Now, why did Jabesh Gilead do that? Because he was one of theirs. Because his great-great-great-great-great-grandmother came from Jabesh Gilead. So God, uh, and then later there's the second Saul, who is Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the Apostle Paul. So Benjamin is reconstituted, and they have a claim to fame uh, through those two men. So verse 24 summarizes it and says, So the children of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. They went out from there, every man to his inheritance. And then we come to the last verse, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right or what was good in their own eyes. That caps it off. Now, what I want to do in the next few minutes is just give us a quick review, uh, an overview of the book of Judges. When many people approach the book of Judges, they put on a set of glasses called Hebrews 11, uh, 32 down through 37. And they look through that lens and they see that uh, Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and Samuel, who's the last judge, are all listed as great heroes of faith. So they put those glasses on and they go back to judges and they focus on these men as great heroes of the faith and they completely botch the purpose and significance of the book of Judges. We know that they all exercise faith at some point in their life, at some point that brought victory to Israel. And for that, God blessed them, and, and, and he praises them for that. It gives us great hope because many of us have failed many, many, many times and yet we've trusted God in the clinches two or three times, and God is going to give us great credit for that. And he, in his grace, overlooks all the other stuff. But the purpose of the book of Judges is not to point out what wonderful heroes of faith all these men were, but to point out how the culture degraded because they abandoned God and they uh, enslaved themselves to the Baals and the Asherah. So Hebrews 11.32 says, What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. See, they didn't, he didn't name Daniel, but Daniel is the one referred to in that phrase. Quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, 
Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, that would be Isaiah, uh, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. And that would apply even to Samson and Jephthah and Gideon and their failures. Because at one point, they really trusted God, and God gave them a great, great victory. So Judges is not about painting their picture as great heroes and wonderful uh, believers whose whole lives were worthy of being emulated. They are to, to reinforce the theme of Judges, that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so we see the summary back when we started which was January, I think it was January the 14th of 2021. So two years and almost four months. This is the 101st lesson. How Israel went from spiritual victory to being worse than the Canaanites. That's what we've seen. Because of their incomplete obedience to God, the tribes compromised in defeating the Canaanites. They gave up because their heart wasn't in the battle, and they became failures. And then God said, I'm going to take you through the cycles of discipline, as I stated in Leviticus 26. And so the first line of evidence is the paganization of the leadership. Othniel was the first, and nothing bad is said of him or Aksa, his wife. And he's followed by Ehud and Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Tola, Jair. You have some minor judges like Shamgar, Tola, and Jair, Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. And little is said about them, but they seem to be, we saw that they were at times of prosperity, even in the time of the judges. But God isn't focused on, in judges, on highlighting the the, the, the areas where there was prosperity and where grace was evident. He's focusing on the general trend of what happened to Israel over 300 years or 350 years and how it destroyed the culture and destroyed the people. And it, it took a deep dive from the very, very beginning. And then the last part, uh, as we see, there's a decline there from Othniel to Samson, who's the worst, about whom nothing good is said. And we see the paganization of the priest, as exhibited by uh, the Levitical priest, who becomes a hired hand for the worship of Micah's idol in chapters 17 to 18, and then leads the tribe of Dan north and establishes a competing sanctuary up north. And then the people. We see that evidenced among the people. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. We saw that there's this cycle in judges of disobedience, then divine discipline, and then deliverance. And a couple of times the people cry out to the Lord, and often it's read in that they are turning back to the Lord, but there's no real evidence that they really turn back to the Lord. They're just basically crying out because God's punishing them so harshly. They just want deliverance, and God in his grace delivered them. But they really, only on, I think, one occasion do you see any form of spiritual renewal take place, and it's not very long-lasting. 
and then the cycle repeats itself. So with each judge, we see a decline from Othniel to Ehud to Deborah to Gideon to Jephthah and to Samson. It's a deteriorating situation. And then when First Samuel opens up, which is during this time as well, uh, the, the judge and the high priest is, uh, well, the, uh, the judge is Ehud, who's just awful, and his sons are worse. And then uh, Samuel is going to be born, and he is a good judge, but his sons become captured by the culture. So why was Judges written? It's written to provide a dark illustration of what happens to the human race and to a nation and to families and businesses when a nation acts independently of God and tries to make up their own rules. They're going to do what they think is right, and they don't care what God wants. Second reason we saw was that Judges also shows that again and again, they turn back to God, and God will deliver them and forgive them, but then the cycle repeats, and it always goes downhill. That shows God is always gracious and meets us where we are. Third, Judge is also written to show God's grace. No matter how rebellious and depraved the people became, God would meet them where they were in grace and enable them to be restored. The fourth reason it was written is to show that God is always faithful to us even when we are faithless. And so God is the real hero in Judges because the nation doesn't just totally implode and get incinerated by the end of the book. It, the story goes on, and the story ends with the death of Samuel at the end of First Samson. I mean, First uh, Samuel, with the death of Saul on Mount Gilboa, and he's replaced by David, who is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, and who is given a covenant that through his seed. Through his descendants, the Messiah will come. So it's a great story. But, it, you know, the story of the Bible doesn't happen in one person's, in a decade in one person's life, but it stretches out over, over generations and over centuries. And when we go back and we look at the whole picture, it gives us a, a way to understand Scripture. And that's what I want to do. Starting next week, we're going to go to the Interlocked series. Now, this is going to be a little different. And, it, you know, I don't want anybody to get their feathers ruffled, but everybody likes to come in here and you all spread out. But you're not going to be able to spread out next week. From now on on Tuesday night, you all are all going to sit down right here because this is going to be teaching parents and grandparents how to teach kids and teaching our prep school teachers, how to teach kids. So we're going to do some fun things. One of my great memories at Dallas Seminary was when uh, John Hanno, who's the head of the historical theology department, dressed in his nice, uh, stylish three-piece suit, standing up, and all of us at that time, he had 400 men in the class, every one of them with a, with a suit and tie on, and he had us all stand up and sing, I may never march in the infantry, but I'm in the Lord's army. All with all the actions. 
So we're going to start this because I, I, I just see I've had these questions that new believers, how do I understand the Bible? Well, you don't understand the Bible in a 30-minute lesson. You understand the Bible, it's, it's going to take a while. But this series has 52 lessons, and I think most of the lessons can prob- are going to be two or three sessions at least. But I want to try to break it down to help the, our prep school teachers understand how to take not only what Charlie Clough did in the framework series, but what Amos and Jen have done in Interlocked, which is designed for 16-year-olds and up, and they have the first seven lessons for those who are 10 and up. They're trying to help parents bring it down. And so I'm working with uh, Alex Manzan and with Russell uh, to help the teachers so that in January, I mean, in September, we're going to get start with this, this series. So we're putting stuff together, and I want to teach this. And so we're going to have some fun with it. It's going to be a little different from regular Bible class, but a lot of it's going to be the same as Bible class. But we need to get a good understanding of the whole picture. One of the complaints I've had since about the time I started seminary was among doctrinal pastors, too many of them spend all of their time analyzing the the microscopic cells on the leaves, on the trees, in the forest, and you never see the tree, much less the forest. And I've tried to do this in many of my series where I do an overview of the whole book, cover it in, in 45 minutes or an hour, and then come back and if it's a big book like Revelation or Genesis, uh, take it or, or Matthew, take it in its subsets so that people can put it together and understand how all the parts fit together and how the Bible tells one story. It tells the story of the human race that was created in God's image and what happens to them because of sin and how God in his love provides a savior and what where God is taking the human race in the future. Well, we've got to be able to put all that together, and it it's, it's doesn't happen. Most people can't walk your way through uh, a book of the Bible, much less the whole Bible. So that's what we're going to do is starting starting next next week. And so what I encourage you to do, because Barb has put up the information on the website so that you can uh, go there and go to their page. It's interlocked, ed, interlocked, ed dot online no yeah dot online and go there and then you can download the notes you can read the notes ahead of time you can write out any questions you have ahead of time someday we might answer them and uh and we'll go through through those lessons so a lot of it's going to be familiar especially the opening i would say the first five or six months because that's the first part of Genesis, and that's going to be familiar to you. But we're going to be emphasizing the themes that are there that run throughout all of Scripture. So that's what we're going to start doing next week. Unfortunately, I've got, what, next week? Today is the uh, 16th, so we'll have the 23rd and then the 30th. So we'll have the two opening overviews, and then I'll be going to Israel. And then when we come back is when we'll really start getting into it. But the first two will be more 
uh, more of the overview. But we're going to have some fun because I'm going to take some stuff I picked up from some other places. There's 11 events, and we're going to put hand signals and body movements to each of those 11 events so that just like kids, we can get fully engaged in being able to plot out the whole story of the Bible in those 11 events. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time we've had to go through Josh, um, to go through Judges. I mean, it's, it's often been a, a, a difficult time because it just doesn't seem to be uh, telling wonderful stories, but it tells a story that we in this era need to know in this time period because this is our country. This is Western civilization. It's not just the United States. It's all of the countries that have been affected uh, by the Protestant Reformation and Christianity. It's Christendom is collapsing around us. And, Father, we know that uh, we know what prophecy says, but we also know that there are cycles and there may be a, a turning back to you. We don't know, but we need to be steadfast and we need to be uh, we, we need to be able to put on the full armor of God, and we need to be armed with the uh, sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So help us be strong in, in, in your Word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.